I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. And welcome back to On Air. Bienvenue. Benvenuto. <laughs> Bienvenidos. Marhaba. Ahlen wasahlen. Welcome, welcome back. It's Wednesday. How are you, Dan? I am good. How are you doing? All is well. All is well. I didn't fly this week. It was an extremely busy week, but no flying. But that was quite nice in terms of just having every night in the same bed. And yeah. Also, sometimes the... Don't you find sometimes you get more exhausted from the shorter trips than the longer ones? I mean, I, mean, I get it. When you're going back and forth to France, that's very tiring. In the coming two days, as you know, I'm flying pretty much nonstop for two days to get a bunch of videos. So it's that's going to be quite intense and it's long haul flights. So I imagine I'm happy yeah. we're recording now because if it was after that, I, I think I'm going to need a few days to just not do anything and recover. And I just want to pick you up on something you just said there. You said, yeah, you know, because you have to go back and forth to France. I just wanted to know geographically, Dan, where <laughs> is it in France that you think I, I head to? Just if you were, I don't know. <laughs> using kind of a basic compass to, to to determine where I where I head to I would say north of south <laughs> you're si- you're sick okay <laughs> right listen once again I bring Marco who is in touch on Instagram back into the episode he's probably surprised to hear that I'm referencing him so soon but he says he says oh my god thank you for the shout out he says Dan cannot be allowed to continue pretending to be a man of the people when he won't fly anything but premium cabins and doesn't even... and do, Sorry, just let Marco finish, then you can respond, okay? And, and doesn't even consider Toulouse to be fancy enough for the south of France. I replied to him saying, Marco, you're a clever guy. I'm starting to think that Marco is you because that sounds exactly <laughs> like something you would write. And the fact that... Marco exists. The, the fact that supposedly Marco is trying to paint me as someone who will only fly premium cabins when you are also right. on this podcast is completely okay. inaccurate. I'm sending you a screenshot now. I did not join this episode with you today to be, to be told or have an insinuation that Marco doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. I'm sending you a screenshot right now. But okay. in the meantime, in the meantime, I guess you can, yeah, you can, enlighten us on what these travels that you'll be taking part in this week is set to be including i mean maybe okay if you don't want to tell us everything give us a bit i mean are you doing lie flat double beds and whatnot or are you (laughs) i'm doing a mix i'm doing the longest flights are in business one is on an airline i have never flown before a pretty new airline hint hint so that's going to be interesting i am not going to spoil who are you flying I can't spoil it here, guys. It needs to, you know, needs to come out on YouTube and then we can discuss it and everything. I'll tell Yeah, maybe I'll text you as I'm boarding. And uh, then uh, my last leg, I'm kind of dreading. I had to spend like $500 on an economy ticket because I'm completing an economy comparison. As you know, I've already recorded two of those when I came to see you a couple weeks ago. And now I need the last video for that. And it was like, I desperately had to fit something into my itinerary. So I had to settle for a $500 economy ticket on a three hour flight, which is really painful, but there was really no other way. So that's what I'm up to. Meanwhile, my mom is out here complaining about Lufthansa business class lounges. I found this 
nothing short of delicious because <laughs> I, I mean, you're not so active these days on Instagram anymore, which I think is, you know, I mean, you, you're, you're like active when you need to be, right? <laughs> but you're, no, it's nothing. God, I, I actually admire that your screen time significantly less as a result, yeah. right? But I did see a story today from your account. You know, the red ring lights up around your your face, and <laughs> I click it, and I see that your mom has informed you that she was so mortified by the Lufthansa lounge. What? What? You tell me. What? What happened? What did she say? So basically, my mom calls me, uh, and she goes. <laughs> She goes, Dan, I was just, I just went to the Lufthansa Lounge. That place, it looks like a school cafeteria. I took one look and I stepped right back out and sat by the gate. And I was like, oh no, that's not how it's supposed to sound. She was like, they have neon lighting from the ceiling. I saw some stale pretzel hanging on the wall. I thought this is not what people pay for when they fly business class. And of course, my mom is still... You know, every time she's flying business class, I'm the one paying for it. So she's really happy for it, really grateful. But for her to be this outraged by something, you know that she has to be really disappointed by it. Wow. I mean, I share your mom's, you know, thought process there. Every time I walk past, specifically, I mean, forget their their own hub lounges in Germany, but every time I, I pop into the Lufthansa lounge for like a split second, for example, if I'm in London at Terminal 2, maybe I don't have time to go over to Terminal 2B and go to the nice Singapore lounge or the Air Canada lounge. And I can only just quickly, you know, have 15 minutes of somewhere that's not in the terminal building. I then very quickly return to that terminal building because I I remember that the terminal <laughs> itself is light and airy and spacious and the Lufthansa lounge is like uh, I'm surrounded by beer and pretzels and this kind of stale smell and and look like don't get me wrong I understand that okay that's their standard I'm just surprised I always I look at passengers and I think what about those that have you know they're not rat on the rat race running around the world on a work trip and they've saved up their hard-earned cash for what they perceive to be a business class experience that maybe they've only ever seen in the movies or they've only ever seen online or on instagram and so on and so on and then do they walk in here and think uh this is a bit school dinnery you know (laughs) but i feel like i don't know any lounge i've taken someone to who has never been in a lounge before they're blown away they're like what you're telling me all these drinks and all this food is free. But to people who have been in, you know, any, even if you've been to like three lounges, you start to be like, okay, this sucks compared to that other one I went to. But when it's your first lounge specifically, then you're like, wow, this is nice. But I feel like anywhere you're going on Lufthansa, even, you know, places in Europe, for example, my mom was saying, cause I was like, yeah, you know, mom, Lufthansa lounges in my opinion aren't like that much worse than many other lounges around Europe like yes I prefer Air France lounges even some British Airways lounges but it's not that much worse she was like Gothenburg has beautiful lounges and that's one thing I will say it's actually true Gothenburg for such a small airport has great lounges and yeah it's Mm. crazy if you're flying Lufthansa let's say from London via Germany to Gothenburg you'll get a nicer hub or a nicer lounge in Gothenburg than you will in Germany which is kind of sad it's even worse when you're flying an airline that has to is forced to use those lounges but doesn't have a lounge of their own and, and so on and so on. I remember leaving Frankfurt with Qatar 
And the lounge was awful. I would have found a nice spot somewhere else in the terminal, quiet, you know, <laughs> sitting. It's just, yeah. And then I, and then it goes back to that thing. What about those that are on there once a year? You know, the, the lifetime trip that they saved up for. Do they not feel a bit, huh? Yeah. You know, by the standard that is just so inconsistent every, yeah. everywhere. And, you know, meanwhile, Air France offers free 15-minute facials by Clarence or even 20 minutes in their business class yeah. lounge. It's crazy to think that those are competitors. I have a very funny story about someone else who flew Lufthansa because yesterday I met this um, she was a she's born and raised in Dubai, Indian girl, uh, Indian parents. Most of our family now lives back in India. And it was so interesting because she was telling me about her experience visiting Gothenburg, Sweden, because her brother has moved there for work, her only sibling. And first of all, she was telling me, like, overall, she loved it. The air is so clean. She's like, it's such a quaint little village. I was like, yes, that's the second biggest town in Sweden. Thank you very much. And then she goes, so I ask her, what did you, you know, how did you fly there? What airline did you take? Oh, God, I had to fly via Munich. It was horrible. I went, what was so horrible about it? Connecting flights. It was the first time in my life I've ever had to connect to go somewhere. I went, oh, wow. this is my entire life connecting flights. <laughs> like my entire youth was connecting to go somewhere else. And she has never had to connect before. And then I go, what do you think about, you know, daily life there for your brother compared to the conveniences you're used to in the Gulf? You know, 20 minute deliveries of almost anything. She was like, yes, I was traumatized when I landed. And I asked my brother, can we can we just order some groceries quickly? And I told him what I wanted. And then that evening I said, where are our groceries? He said, oh, yes, darling, they'll be here in three days. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, uh, no instant kind of, you know, the nature of all things instant there. But that's, no. <laughs> that's not just a Goldenberg thing. That's like most places across Europe that is not the capital city. You know? Yeah. Exactly. So I was just the the amount I laughed when she was telling me these things was I must have seemed unhinged, but it was just so funny to see someone who's grown up in, first of all, like one of the most well connected cities in the world with direct flights to everywhere yeah. on great airlines and then having so much convenience coming to little Gothenburg and just being like blown away by things that people who live in Europe or have grown up there just see as normal. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Cool. Well, thank you for listening to all that. <laughs> um, speaking of destinations, I guess, that are not highly connected in terms of direct routings with air travel. It's funny. I was just going through some briefing documents before we were coming on air uh, that were highlighting the key hotspots of the world right now, whereby airlines are, if they were not in those markets previously, now adding frequencies, launching routes, and so on and so on. There were two standouts here, okay? Firstly, Australia. I mean, the US airlines, apparently, they've only just opened up an atlas and realized that Australia is there, and <laughs> Brisbane specifically. Because everybody wants paying, the slice of Brisbane. <laughs> but Brisbane is giving huge subsidies, that's why. So they are. that's why they all yeah, have a slice so of the Brisbane cake. Brisbane itself, as, as, as you now have mentioned it, for Brisbane specifically, the Queensland government has this thing called the Attracting Aviation Investment Fund, right? It's a $200 million fund. 
And you can bet that that is, as you say, part of the reason why airlines want a slice of the cake that is Brisbane right now, because they are actively incentivizing airlines into launching routes there. And by the way, this is far more common than people realize. You know, there are there are so many areas of the world that quite literally have to put together these generous packages, either by exempting airlines from almost all fees. So we'll make it free for you to land. We won't charge you per minute or per hour on the stand or at the gate. We'll give you a jet bridge gate for free. We won't charge you fees for operating to and from the airport. We'll cut this tax. We'll cut that tax. We'll go complete, you know, Republican on it in terms of cutting taxes, (laughs) right? Or they incentivize by saying, if you fly here, we'll give you X amount. And that X amount typically is then applied as a discount later on. Uh, So, yeah, that's interesting. So Australia came up as one in this briefing document, but also, as I'm going to very casually generalize them, the stands, okay, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and so on and so on, Uzbekistan, they are are seeing additional frequencies added to airlines that already fly there, but also airlines launch routes for the first ever time, some with fanfare, some with little fuss, just recognizing that in a globalized world, the more direct flights, the better. You, of course, combine that with the fact that flights are full. I mean, I know we talk about this a lot, but everywhere. You check the loads like me. I mean, every flight is full. Most flights. Uh, (laughs) I feel like... From this region, sorry, from this region. (laughs) Comparing it to pre-COVID, we definitely noticed the flights are much more full than before. I feel like... If you're very flexible and smart about it, there are still ways to avoid being on completely sold out flights. But sometimes you have no choice. That's what I realized with my upcoming three hour, $500 economy class flight, for example. So it is, it's not as easy as it was. Do you see how much it pains you? Do you see, do you? Do you do you see how much it pains you that you've just mentioned that now for the third, the second or third time? It we get it. Horrible. You're flying economy okay. for five hundred dollars. That's the problem on a three-hour flight. <laughs> what aircraft is it? A three twenty. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just say it. I know what comes next. <laughs> Yeah, okay. He ruined my joke. I was going to tell him I heard what he said. I'm I'm just sorry. Anyway, the back back to the back to the the stands, okay? You have traveled extensively across that region, including as recently as the last couple of years. I haven't been to Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. I have done Kazakhstan a few times. I mean, what are your takeaways from from there? It was so the first time I landed in Uzbekistan was on a Turkish Airlines 787, the middle of the night. And this was, um, I think, okay, now I'm getting a bit confused about all the COVID years just seemed bunched together, but it was when, like, most flights were empty back then, but somehow our flight to Tashkent on a Turkish 787-9 was sold out. And this was still when there were a lot of travel restrictions. Istanbul Airport was not at all what it is now in terms of traffic. And I just got on our flight and I was like, what? So very happy to be in business on that one. We land in the middle of the night. And it's so fascinating because it's just a region where everything feels so different and so unfamiliar. And it's like stepping into a almost like a cartoon. It feels a bit Wes Anderson, the vibe. And you're just like, wow, this is it was 
an amazing trip. I highly, highly recommend visiting Uzbekistan. Samarkand mm-hmm. and uh, Bukhara are just stunning places. And many airlines even fly direct straight to Samarkand, which is the main tourist site. Yeah. And we have many funny stories from there, which I guess we'll get to share on today's episode. What, if you had to choose out of the countries that you'd visited in in Central Asia, or specifically, let's group them together, like Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. What do you think is the best in terms of visiting as a as a tourist, I guess? Well, in terms of Central Asia, I've only actually visited Uzbekistan, so I can't really say that much compared to the others. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were talking... So you haven't been to Kazakhstan? No, I haven't actually traveled there. I, okay. I really want to, but some of our challenges... Does that mean you haven't... Some of the challenges we yeah. faced in Uzbekistan make me a oh. little, like, apprehensive to choose to spend my, you know, time off there. But it, it's always a trade-off. It, it is, yeah, that's what mm. every trip has an opportunity cost. Did you, Does that mean you have never flown Air Astana? I have not. And they keep emailing me, like, several times a year. Oh, wow. Me, Please wow, come that's fly how- with us. <laughs> That's how this works, ladies and gents. Us, we just, we're on, you know, me and you guys, the listeners, we're on like Skyscanner, we're online, we're searching. You see this, the airlines are actively begging him to board. It's reverse. (laughs) Wow. I think you are painting this image of yourself. (laughs) It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. This is the truth, okay? This is the truth. Listen. I respect I respect the hustle. You're a YouTuber. You know it's fine. It's my viewers funny know. when I ask if you if you've flown Aristana and you say no, but that begging me. <laughs> Listen, I would love to fly Aristana, but my viewers know that I never ever accept free flights, and that's the reason, yeah. despite them offering all the time, that I haven't been to Kazakhstan. I haven't flown Aristana, yeah. but when as soon as I find an itinerary where it makes sense for me. You better believe I'm trying them. Well, I did. I did. Uh, I have flown on Aristana 767. I've flown on their 757 on an overnight flight from Frankfurt. Ooh. And I have flown. Or was it London? No, it was Frankfurt. And I've also flown on. I did the delivery for the A321, uh, the Neo. And so it's nice to have been able to see the, the evolution. The 757 flight on the red eye was absolutely brutal because it was weirdly short. You know, it was only like four hours, 40 minutes or something from Frankfurt. And yet, yet it was complete broad daylight when I arrived. And of course, try and get comfortable on a 757 of um, that configuration. It's an older cabin. It was just, yeah, oh God, it felt kind of just like I'd flown for days by the time yeah. I arrived. They even See, I'm going to be nice here. Flight. I'm going to be nice and not mm. point out that you were in business on that flight as well. Listen, but that seat, I may as well have been in economy. I don't think there was much difference. Right? <laughs> okay, just <laughs> when uh, they've changed, they now have newer aircraft. But Aristana are a really, really interesting carrier that are quite attractive in terms of investments. And I always hear kind of murmurings and chatter about um, foreign carriers that are interested in this little boutique airline that could. And that's kind of, you know, that, that yeah. that's almost how we see um, Aristana. When I had arrived, into the first time I ever went to Kazakhstan, 
I was not staying in the capital. I was staying far away, really far away, right? Because it was near to one of these suppliers to do with the aviation sector in Kazakhstan and so on and so on. Basically, my view from the hotel room looked like a desert, okay? Kind was it like, like a, Bora? A dry desert. Not, you know that Borat is supposed to... Do you know what? There. When I went to Kazakhstan, everyone was telling me about Borat. And even and, and even even the Kazakhs that I w- was with there were like, oh, God, have you seen Borat? I've never seen it. What? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I've never seen it. But I, I know that it's what made Kazakhstan famous, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> in a good and bad way, mainly a bad way. Yes, but <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, well, maybe I but should you know, watch that. But I mean, I have to say that, you know, Borat's catchphrase is very nice. So for the longest time, Kazakhstan was extremely annoyed about that movie. They tried to get it banned. Mm. They were complaining to the U.S. government. But finally, they embraced it a few years ago. And they said, you know what? We're just going to make the most of this iconic movie being recorded here. So they made an ad where they were promoting the country and kept going, very nice. <laughs> so it was like a nice okay. full circle moment use of that. That's clever. That's clever. That's that's the way to do it in those scenarios, not trying to clamp down on Hollywood blockbuster films that are already everywhere. So what are you going to yeah. be able to, uh, you know, to rein in? But staying... So I arrived in the morning, didn't have anything that day, couldn't go out anywhere because I was in the middle of nowhere. And then the task of having to find somewhere to have dinner quickly became the challenge because I was in the middle of nowhere. So it was going to be the restaurant at the hotel. Sat down, saw that there was like a pasta, a this, a burger. I was like, okay, can I have this? She was like, uh, yes, but I couldn't... The meat was not written anywhere. Was it beef? Was it <laughs> lamb? Was it whatever? So I think, okay, I'll, I'll play it safe. I'll just have a pasta. And they're like, okay, the pasta. It's a horse meat pasta. I said, it's a horse meat pasta. What does that? What does that mean? It's like a ravioli and stuffed with horse meat. I was like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll have mine without the horse meat, please. I've just had mine. No, no, no. It's already prepared like that. I was like, yes. okay. I'll have then something else on the menu. And I'm scanning every single thing is meat. And now I'm understanding it's not just meat. It's horse meat. So, yeah, I'm not in, you know, the mood to dine on uh, a stallion. So I'm (laughs) going through the menu. Nothing, nothing. I said, so cut to the chase. Is everything on this menu horse meat? She looked, she was like, "Uh, no. I said, oh, okay, great. What's not? She was like, the bread. (laughs) Okay. I said, only the bread. So I only had bread that night. Imagine, right? Because she did bring horse meat for me to, quote, try. But sorry, if I was going to try horse meat, of all places, it was not going to be there. It came out gray, lukewarm. I was like, <laughs> literally something straight out of a Lufthansa lounge buffet. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not having that. So <laughs> my first day was really horrible because it was kind of shaped by just like hunger. And it was crazy. And I, I went to bed and I was starving and I was Googling how far am I from the capital, right? I need to somehow order a car that can take me to the capital. I saw there was a Ritz Carlton that had just opened and breakfast started <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning. And I was like, that is where I'm going. I need to eat. <laughs> take and, uh, me to the Ritz anyway, Carlton. <laughs> literally, driver, take me to the Ritz No, but then after that, I, d- I did go to the Ritz Carlton that morning for breakfast and, and eat for about three and a half hours. Shortly <laughs> after that, I then moved and I was in the capital and I 
loved it. I found I found it very cool. I found it trendy. We tasted local delicacies. I skipped on the horse bits, but there were other bits that I liked. And what, what were we those bits? To, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were. It was dishes that I would find very similar to that of Turkish cuisine, uh, mm. Indian cuisine, Iranian cuisine. Yeah, you probably even had a little like bit of Greek, of, like their, uh, you know, their rice, famous rice dish in Central Asia. Yes, I, I think that would have been for sure. There was plenty of. Plenty of dishes that just already felt very familiar in terms of either being Asian or East Mediterranean and so on and so on. And then I really enjoyed it. And Alamati is a very, very cool place as well, which I think you would really like. And I think you should visit when you eventually, you know, uh, email them saying, oh, OK, I guess I'll come <laughs> <laughs> to, to, uh, to Astana. And yeah, so that's my, that was my, my first bit, but I haven't done the other countries. And, and that's the thing. When you go to those countries, the first thing that says, oh, you meet someone from, for example, neighboring Uzbekistan and they tell you, oh, it's much better than Kazakhstan. You should come <laughs> and so on and so on. So, Can I tell you, yeah, since before going to Uzbekistan, it's like you, you don't think about Uzbekistan. You don't notice people who come from Uzbekistan since going there. I feel like literally everyone, I, every one out of every 50 people I meet is from Uzbekistan. And yes. I'm like, what? Yes. And then I tell them I've been there and they are, what? You've been to Uzbekistan? And it's always so fun to talk about it. And uh, I, yeah. I can definitely relate on the the mystery meat thing. And you know that Oscar and I do not eat meat. So we were in Samarkand. We had a guide and we asked him to take us to a place with vegetarian food for lunch. So he took us to this cafe and they had plov, which is this famous rice dish from Uzbekistan and several other countries. So we sit down, we order the non-meat plov, and then it's like, oh, just come along to the kitchen to see how it's made. So we go to the kitchen and just like in the case of your horse meat thing, we see this giant pot, like, I don't even know, it's like an A380 tire. That's how big this pot was of rice, vegetables, and meat. And I go, okay, so where is ours being made? Oh, this is it. And I go, what? Oh, yeah, they'll just pick out the meat. <laughs> and all of this was just boiling in one huge pot. And I'm like, what is it boiling in? Oh, some animal fat. And I was like, okay. So they bring it to our table. And there's like literally along with every grain of rice, there's a tiny little grain of meat and they just don't have a big piece on top like our guide. So I was like, I'm so sorry, but this is not really something we can eat. And that that was our experience with food, mostly when we were outside of the capital. Tashkent had some nice restaurants. We had amazing plov at the Hyatt Regency, I think, so authentic, <laughs> but um, we ended yeah, up just you hear that everyone. <laughs> the Hyatt, the Hyatt Regency. You went to the Ritz Carlton for food, so at least Dan, we're not talking about me. We're talking about you. <laughs> Go on. So anyway, for some reason, a lot of Koreans visit Central Asia. They, you know, there's there's direct flights from very few places, but Korean airlines, Korean Air, Asiana, fly to Uzbekistan to Kazakhstan. 
and bring a lot of tourists there. So there are Korean restaurants all over the country. And Oscar and I love Korean food. So we ended up having like bibimbap every day <laughs> the whole time we were outside the capital, which was very nice. <laughs> That's nice. It's always funny when you realize that when you stop for a minute, sometimes I think as Europeans, maybe we maybe automatically by default, we think of which Europeans which European countries visit this country and so on and so on. And then you realize like, wait, maybe Europe's not even in the picture. Maybe this is a market for somewhere further east or somewhere further south and so on and so on. It's always good to have that awareness, isn't it? And not just the, you know, oh, it's only relevant if Europe and, and North America know about it, discuss it, travel there and so exactly. on and so on. And then I think like the mindset that a lot of people have in Europe and I guess in the West is that, when you travel, you have to eat. Okay, this is, I'm, I take this back. Most people don't think this way, but I feel like many experienced travelers are like, yeah, when you travel, you have to only eat the local food. That's what it's about. You have to try things there. But, you know, there's Italy, there's Thailand, there's Japan, there's these places that are famous for their food. But then the truth is, there's a lot of places, Oscar and I have been to 102 countries that are not really known for their food whatsoever, besides maybe one dish. Yeah. So trying to eat local yeah. every meal is extremely prohibitive and not so enjoyable. So at some point you just go, screw it. I'm going to have the food that I like and go to a Chinese restaurant or a Korean restaurant or a Thai restaurant or whatever it may be. Come on, that's that's more than fair enough. It would be ridiculous to pressure yourself that it has to be everything you consume has to be local. That would be difficult as a native in your own country, no? I mean, yeah, in most the, countries, the variety that we eat, yeah, the that, variety that we eat. Yeah, that's why, like, it's so fascinating when you go to a country, I think especially I would say in Asia, like in Korea, Koreans really seem to eat Korean food every single meal, every single day. Eating any foreign cuisine is like a very special different thing. Similar in China, in Thailand, people eat a lot of Lao food, but it's pretty much Lao and Thai. And I mean, Thai food is so incredible, so I don't blame them. But it's like, I, I love Korean food, but most of it is based on the same chili sauces and chili peppers. It's like soybean paste or gochujang, which is their soybean chili paste. So a lot of it to me tastes similar. So to me, it's amazing that most people there are still go to local restaurants for every meal because most people eat out because they don't have big kitchens or they don't have time to cook. Yeah. So they go to restaurants for every meal to eat their local cuisine, which, I mean, good on them. It's cute and, you know, wholesome that they enjoy nice. it so much. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. And you know what's funny? And we were talking about just now about, you know, travelers and the stereotypes of, you know, tourists and that behavior and so on. As I look at the calendar now, you know we are about four weeks away from the beginning of the Northern Hemisphere summer season for airlines. Mm. I mean, that literally begins at the end of March. So the summer season for airlines typically begins at that time. Of course, it doesn't peak until uh, several weeks later, but it does get earlier every year. And where people would say, oh, don't go to the Greek islands in July, go in June, it's much better. Now it, it used to be, don't go in June, you should go in, in, in May, it's much better. Now even you know these places don't go in may because everyone's there in may now you should go in, and, and so it gradually gradually gets uh gets earlier every year and then of course it's that means the queuing begins it means we're no longer going to be alone in x y or z because the return of the en masse travelers are ready and have been ever since the pandemic and it's just not slowing down i mean it's you know that 
absolutely everywhere and in all these key hotspots. I saw this. This is what made me bring the subject up. A video came up from me earlier. It's like you ask Americans where they went in uh, summer. They went to Europe. Where did they go? France, Italy, Greece, or France, Italy, Spain. And that's it. And that that's the that's the idea of Europe. Yeah. Do you think in 2024, this summer, we are going to see destinations that were not mainstream in previous years become a little more known or mainstream this summer, this time around? Oh, that's really hard to say because I feel like the the people who will go to the less mainstream destinations will be the people who unfortunately can't afford the mainstream destinations. And I'm one of those people like I was checking, OK, let's go to Amsterdam or Paris this summer. And I was like, wait a minute, if you want to stay in a decent hotel, it's four or five hundred euros a night. Not worth it. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to Asia or I'll go, you know, somewhere where I'll get more for my money. So it's just, you know, <laughs> I think that's how it's decided. People say, okay, Albania is a trending destination. I guess trending is relative to what it was before. But of course, the main places will still be the most popular. Prices get higher. And it's, I agree, it's so like crazy when you, I still think to myself, okay, I'll go there in September because there will be less people and it will be less expensive. And then I check the prices and I check the flights and I'm like, okay, that's not true at all. Anytime when it's nice (laughs) to go to this place, it's expensive and it's crowded. Yeah. It's true. And you know, while we're on that topic, please, there are more Greek islands than only Santorini and Mykonos. Yes. Okay. Let, let this be said, you know, for the record, there are there is so much more. I just yesterday, yesterday, a, a girl, she um, said to me, oh, Alex, blah, 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 I follow you, this. And then she said to me, uh, where are you from, though? Because she said, like, you, you sound British, but you look like blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I said, I'm Greek. She said, Oh, I wanted to go to Greece this uh, summer. I was just discussing this last night with my family. And we were, she was telling me that, oh, we were saying in Eid, in the second Eid, we uh, w- will go to Greece. She said, but Santorini and Mykonos are too busy. I said, true. She said to me, and so I feel the others must not be very good. It must only be those two. And I said, <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're absolutely mistaken. No, no. She was like, you can do me. Yes, yes, I'll do you a list. I said, so Instagram DM and I'm going to, you know, give her a list and, and so on and so on. <laughs> Please, there is so much more to, to that. You... I think, to answer the question I asked you earlier, I think we're going to see a hell of a lot more travel to Sicily this summer in what is <laughs> the pre-bookings last year when everyone watched the season two of The White Lotus. Yeah, but now I'm so scared. I don't want, I mean, okay, you can't gatekeep a country. Thailand is already extremely touristy, but I don't want Koh Samui, which is a beautiful place, very touristy, but beautiful, to become overrun because I feel like once White Lotus season three comes out, it's going to be like, I was about these, to say, can you just explain, Americans. explain? Explain to the listeners why you've said that. What what's why are you mentioning Thailand? Okay, so for those of you who haven't seen White Lotus, watch it. We promise. Well, okay, we can't promise, but pretty sure you'll love it. The yeah. most incredible show. Yeah. And every season they go to a new place. It's about these luxury hotels called the White Lotus. So the first one was in Hawaii, the second one was in Sicily, and the next season, which is coming out early next year from what I hear, is being shot at Four Seasons Kosamui and Oh yeah, here we go. The music. If you know it, dance with us. You know, you know what? You, do you know they started filming last week? Yeah, I I saw the 
Oh yeah, because you're in what? You're in the Facebook group, or what? What are you part of? Where you see the updates? Facebook, please. Are we 2007? Goodness me! No, I am on. Hold your breath. The Reddit thread. Okay, so that's far <laughs> so, more less respectable than than being in the Facebook group. <laughs> so I, I somehow I downloaded the app. No, not somehow. I did download the app Reddit, and then it. It suggested this White Lotus thread. I was like, sure, I'll see what they're talking about filming. And now occasionally, when I remember, I go into it. Anyway, they they had started filming last week or the week before last. And it is at the Four Seasons Koh Samui. So if you have stayed at the Four Seasons in Koh Samui, have you, Dan? I, I have not, no. Okay. So if you, the listener, have, congratulations in advance because you have stayed at a White Lotus, which is now a trend. It is taking on a whole tourism trend of its own people aggressively try to determine okay which white lotus is you know white lotus is a fictional hotel which hotel is this actually that they're, that they're filming at very easy to find out the one in sicily was the four seasons in taromino and they literally had to close bookings for 12 months because it just sold out within a week. Something something crazy like that. And then everyone's recreating and going to the desk of the reception area and saying, oh, this is where this scene happened. Walking down this uh, window, uh, this aisle and saying, oh, this window is where X, Y, Z and so on and so on. It's, it's funny how what an impact these series when they go viral can have on human behavior and travel trends. I know, but the crazy thing to me about this whole thing is that White Lotus is a satire show. It's basically making fun of the people who go and stay at these places. Yet everyone yeah. is like, I want to go and flocking to go there. <laughs> it's like people don't see the irony of that. I mean, sure, I'm not going to lie. I think that a lot of the stuff we talk about on this podcast, a lot of the stuff we do as travelers in general would, you know, it wouldn't be too off in White Lotus, especially the things we say about Lufthansa's business class lounge, for example, but it's speak for it yourself, is. Dan. Don't drag me. Don't drag me in that with you. It is I'm, supposed to I'm be I'm more than happy with pretzels and the smell of, you know, stale <laughs> hot dogs. No, not not really. You're right. <laughs> I have an idea where they could go for the third season. So they Gothenburg. could they could turn the following hotel into a white lotus, the the Sankt Jorgen Park. Ring, ring any bells? Yes. That's a very popular spa hotel in Gothenburg. There we go. Or they could go to the, oh, this one sounds nice, Hotel Pigali. (laughs) Okay, no, don't go there. No, no. Or there is finally the third option is the Dorcia Hotel and Restaurant. My brother used to work there as a waiter. It's uh, a very... weird haven't we come full circle (laughs) it's kind of a weird burlesque style hotel that would be oh my god and then my brother could be like in the show that would be cool but oh there's um, a radisson blue goodness yeah we i mean hello (laughs) there's radisson there's uh stockholm has most of the good scandic yeah scandic is yeah (laughs) scandic is all over (laughs) scandinavia but you know what's funny is (laughs) there's one five-star hotel in the entire country of sweden so Sometimes there's a huge arena in Gothenburg. So, for example, Coldplay, Bruce Springsteen, some people come do concerts there. They always stay at this one like hotel called Elite Hotel on 
it's it's really not the nicest hotel. I imagine these celebrities who come aren't, you know, we're not talking Mariah Carey. People are known to be divas, but there have been several rappers who have come to Sweden and performed at um, festivals like in the north of the country, for example. And they have a policy that they only accept five star hotels when they perform at a festival. So the problem is there is only one and it's in the capital. So they literally have the festival, the people arranging the festival, charter a helicopter to fly them to Stockholm after they've performed or even a private jet, depending on how far it is, just so they can stay in a f- the only five star hotel in the country. Wow. Okay, that's a bit extra. So we sound quite good in comparison. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Well, look, we have a whole bunch of Q&A to get to. Before we get to it, I'm just going to quickly run through some of the quick headlines of the last week. Ryanair want compensation from Boeing because of aircraft delivery delays, something we're both very well aware of. They were echoing that uh, over the last seven days. Abu Dhabi is considering buying a stake into London's Heathrow Airport. If they do, of course, you and I will be the last entities on the earth to not own a stake in Heathrow Airport, so apparently (laughs) you better get moving. Uh, Abu Dhabi, if they did buy, would be joining the likes of the Europeans who own Saudis, Qataris, and so on and so on. And Air China is set to be trying to determine how it could take a significant stake in Cathay Pacific that would ultimately see Air China of Beijing have a little more control of Hong Kong's Cathay Pacific, something that could, of course, impact not only the global public that fly Cathay Pacific via Hong Kong, but, of course, those who are regulars and are based in Hong Kong themselves. And, of course, what questions does that bring in terms of the role that One World has uh, with Cathay Pacific? We often see when airlines get bought up or a significant stake or so on, sometimes it means that they have to divorce the alliance that they're part of, One World being the best one, and maybe join an alliance that's not very great, like <laughs> SkyTeam, for example. Or Star Alliance, right? For Air China, I think. In Air, Of course, in Air China's yeah. case, it was Star Alliance. But I didn't want to say, I didn't oh, want to say an, to an alliance that wasn't great, like Star Alliance. <laughs> yeah, because I like Star Alliance. I think that it's SkyTeam that needs the work. <laughs> I think it depends because SkyTeam has Delta, the best, well, widely considered well, the that's best true. of the US three. That's true. That's Air true. France KLM, yeah. good. China <clears throat> Airlines based in Taiwan, great. Um what other good airlines? You're right. I take yeah. that back because of the Delta comment. I think you've just I think anyone's perception of an alliance, whether it's good or not, is based on where you live, to be honest. I just think there's no there's no uh you know based on yeah but the think about that you this. frequent out of and the airlines that you So you're got. often you spend a lot of time in Doha. Sky Team, you have Saudia, which is actually quite great. And your Sky Team options around there are Egypt Air and Ethiopian, which are not as great. So, you know, it's all about what you compare it to. I think that. But, but yeah. in terms of connectivity, in terms of connectivity, you know, that is great. Ethiopian, uh, basically, you're uh, Africa's main carrier and uh, for an entire continent, you know, and. Uh, and Saudia can get you, you know, quite a bit away from the Middle East and to uh, the different destinations that they fly direct. So they each have their benefits. You're yeah. Right. They okay, do. I take back but, my comment about that. But we team. both agree that One World is the best. And we don't want Cathay Pacific to leave it. And by the way, 
Can you imagine? This would be a tragedy. Cathay Pacific is an iconic legacy airline, a symbol of Hong Kong. It's it's so special. And to have that bought up by Air China, which isn't exactly known to be wow, would be just so sad. Yeah, I agree. Let's go to Q&A. Okay, the first question is from Pierre Bordeaux. He says, when I was flying for work, I would sometimes notice Boeing or Airbus tags on the luggage of some of the business class passengers. I'm guessing that they work for those companies. Does that mean that they get special privileges? Well, I think the quick answer to that, Pierre, is typically those that have the luggage tags, for example, the aviation luggage tags of aircraft type. So you have like an Airbus or a Boeing one, or it says like A321 LR, or it says 777, or it says remove before flight. I don't think that immediately indicates that they work for A or B, but rather that they are part of the aviation sector in some way, or at least very passionate about it. Maybe they're frequent flyers and they they enjoy aviation so much that they collect those tags. Maybe they work for the airline, maybe they work for another airline, maybe they work somewhere else in the sector with a catering company or a cleaning company and so on and so on. But either way, the passion surfaces through those key chains and I have them all over my luggage and I know Dan does too, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I should also mention, especially in Asia, there's a lot of Avgeek stores in, you know, Hong Kong or in China, and you can buy those types of tags almost everywhere. So it's, I feel like it's just in Europe. We don't see it so often, but yeah, you can, you can buy Boeing tags here and there if, to show what side you're on. And also if you've been at an Airbus event or if you've been to, you know, one of their HQs, it's pretty easy to get a tag, for example. The next question is from Thomas. He says, do you think that business class is too good now? Is the gap between premium and business too big in price and comfort? But while business class is ultimately too good. So he says, in my opinion, and it's a pretty controversial one, Thomas, he says, in my opinion, business class should be six abreast like the Emirates life flat seat on the 777. Current business class should be called first and first class should be called something like sweet. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You go first. Oh, that, okay. Interesting argument. I think what, what Thomas is commenting on is the inflation of cabin classes. And basically going back 30 years, what we call premium economy now was business or first class back then and there was no such thing as a life flat seat so the quality of premium cabins keeps inflating business class now is way better than international first class was 20 25 years ago so we're just seeing these constant improvements we're also seeing the price of tickets reduce i think at this point it's just the state of competition if one airline like qatar airways has q suite another airline it's amazing Emirates can still compete, rocking up with seven seats across on their 777s. But it's all about, you know, one airline pushes the boundary a little bit further. Like when Virgin Atlantic and British Airways were the first airlines to introduce lifelet seats in business class. That was not something that, you know, was on people's mind. Then fast forward to now, not having a lifelet seat in business seems absolutely insane. So it's always these small steps. Qatar Airways introduces a door in business class. And then everyone else says, okay, I guess we're doing doors now. So then doors get added. And that's why we're also yeah. seeing first class being phased out because 
Why pay for first class when you can get a good enough seat, good enough service for a third of the price? I echo entirely Dan's thoughts. And I think it's just interesting how, as you say, there are some carriers that ultimately determine and shape the way that the rest of the industry follows. And I can remember being in a British Airways briefing where they said to me, no, 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 our passengers do not like doors. They have told us explicitly <laughs> they don't want doors. This is not Qatar Airways. We would, we, we enjoy the social aspects of everything. Strictly no doors. Two we years loved, later, We love sitting face to face in club world and <laughs> that awkward yeah, configuration. Well, that's a whole other subject. Apparently, they thought that humans loved each other that much that we literally wanted to stare at each other, strangers, for eight plus hours. But uh, anyway, the um, the... <laughs> The, the way in which they U-turned on that is not really a U-turn, but is more just an evolution of where the market is. Everyone follows. And the gap has closed between first and business class, as Dan highlighted, that now I would not want to be the one. Who am I kidding? I would love to be the one, but I would not want to be the one, hypothetically, having to determine how to have an incredibly solid business class and also an incredibly solid first class on the same aircraft. What do you do? Because the way in which business class has evolved to become individual suites, you know, personal space areas, so on and so on and so on. What do you then do for first other than just maximize all that in size? Just go big, bigger, you know, yeah. the, there's only so much they can do. Just make it bigger. You know? And you know, and the, uh, the crazy thing is that there's only one aircraft where first class truly makes a difference these days. It's the A380 because yeah. the things it's you can do on the A380 are unlike any other plane, you know, the, the E350 is wonderful, but even these first-class yeah. seats that Japan Airlines is introducing, that Qantas will introduce on Project Sunrise, it's just not the same as having a shower on Emirates on their E380 or having a double bed, an incredibly large double bed with so much space. You, It's literally bigger than some New York City studio apartments on Singapore Airlines A380 first-class. That's what distinguishes first-class nowadays, and the bar is so high that it's it's just crazy absolutely his second question is will the a321 xlr that's the extra long range a321 that's due out at some point this year finally allow for low-cost long-haul operators uh to take market share from legacy carriers with the major hubs i think in a nutshell it's definitely going to help any low-cost long-haul operators thrive economically. But what I will add is that I think they are already able to do this in a very similar way, in an almost identical way, with the existing A321neo portfolio. So if you have the A321LR, that's the long range, that's out and available today. Even if you have the A321neo, the range capabilities that these jets have, I mean, it, it, it actually does better than what Airbus initially advertised. It's possible. You can be a, a, a low-cost, long-haul, agile carrier with these aircraft, and this is why the A321 is absolutely one of Airbus's modern-day best sellers because of the versatility and economic efficiency that it brings the airline and the environmental efficiency that it brings the Earth. <laughs> yes, but we should just mention quickly that, in my opinion, this is anything but good news for passengers when it comes to low-cost, yeah. long-haul, because... First of all, being on a narrow body is just on a long flight is not even comparable to any wide body. I would rather be on a 767 from 30 years ago than on an A321neo long haul because you have Come more lavatories. No, more, no, 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 absolutely. No. The on. ceiling is higher. You have way more lavatories for the number of passengers. 
it's just it's a two three two configuration on the seven six seven. The other thing, which I forgot I was going to say, it won't really drive prices down really any more than yeah. what they currently are. Because of capacity. Which, yeah, yeah. So the benefits yeah. are not really there. Jenny has got in touch. She says, hi, Alex. I listened to the latest episode of On Air last night and thought I would quickly reach out to you about my Royal Brunei experience. Well, hey, we did ask for that. So she says, I live in Melbourne. She lives in Melbourne. She lives in Melbourne. And I've flown Royal Brunei twice, although it was going back pre-pandemic. The first time I flew them was Melbourne to London, return in business, and the second time was Melbourne to Bangkok, return, which was also in business. Both were via Bandar Seri Begawan, which is the capital, and my reason was 100% price, she says. They used to be by far the cheapest. Uh, Lay flat bed you could buy around 4,500 Australian dollars return from memory, which at the time compared very favorably with the 6,000 Australian dollar plus prices with the major airlines. Both times I flew them, I was recommended by a travel agent and they were absolutely, I'm just going to the next page of this question, absolutely being sold as the cheapest life flat option. So we were right because we did guess that, didn't we? We wondered if passengers were were being sold Royal Brunei's, oh go, it's a flatbed and everything, just do it and it's cheap. You know, so she says, I think their market was almost certainly Australians who were on a quote once a life once in a lifetime Europe vacation and who were not invested in gaining loyalty or points ETC. A couple of points of interest. If you bring your own alcohol in business class, the cabin crew will serve your own alcohol. We purchased a bottle of wine duty free in Melbourne and the crew were happy to open it for us and serve it. The flight to London used to only stop once, just a two-hour layover. The soft product and the lounge were absolutely nothing to get excited about, but from memory, we flew both times on a fairly new 787. That would have been correct. Jenny, she says, I was really surprised to hear Dan say the prices were about the same as major airlines. And so I checked, and he's absolutely right. He, She says... Royal Brunei is charging the same as Qatar for Melbourne to Heathrow. (laughs) I have no idea who their target market is now, so I assume Dan is right that the flights must be pretty empty. Anyway, apologies for the long message, she says in capital letters, but keep up the great work on the podcast. I've been a huge follower of Dan's YouTube channels for a long time, and now I'm a big fan of your podcast. Thank you, Jenny. That was great. Thank you. That was great. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's thank you so much for that input. Loved hearing that. I have a question. I have some fun questions here from Frederick. He has, so the the first one is for you, but I just, I find it funny that he even noticed this and then thought to ask, but this is the kind of av geek stuff we like. So his first question is, why does Qatar always taxi so slowly, especially compared to Iberia who goes crazy fast in Madrid? IB, uh, yeah, QR even went slowly in Madrid where Iberia races is his first question. <laughs> So standard operating procedures that I think one airline respects and the other doesn't. <laughs> it says it says simple as that. I always notice how fast we taxi on Iberia, and I just imagine the Spanish captain at the front saying, "You know, vamanos, vamanos," and I'm like, oh "My goodness, you know, we are definitely doing 25 knots or something, right?" I mean, it feels like that. Maybe we're not, but yeah, it's a very valid point. I would say it's just a case of maybe some pilots at foreign other carriers getting away with thinking they can go a little bit faster compared with an airline that are much more strict in terms of their SOPs. Yeah, it's Qatar Airways strictness, I guess is the answer. His second question is 
Well, very funny because I, I think I have a theory, but he says, recently flew the new Iberia A350 with doors in business class from Madrid to London, and the crew said that due to a rule at Heathrow, they cannot unlock the doors on that flight. This seems strange, as surely <laughs> BA and QR use their doors on flights to and from London. <laughs> well, I think okay. Iberia, long-haul <laughs> cabin crew, <laughs> is infamous for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think they were having that conversation in the galley before. Where just blame it on London, just blame it on whatever. Like it's unfortunately this is the part of the aviation sector I hate, which is where those that are in positions in the sector think that they can literally tell you, the flying public, anything, and it should be believed. Yes, and Iberia cabin crew are infamous for wanting to do. I should say, especially on long-haul flights, for some reason, that means this A350 was operated by a long-haul crew. They're just, so, for some reason, known to really do as little work and as put in as little effort as possible, which is really sad. Of course, that's not the case across the board, but on my Iberia long-haul flights, that has certainly been the case. And uh, Do you know what, Dan? I wouldn't even be worried about generalizing there. Of course, it's not going to be the case across the board. Of course, we're not speaking about everyone, but it is... Nothing short of ridiculous as to how famous this is now for Iberia. Why are the crew so hostile? Why is yeah. it? Why are they so rude? You know, that that's that. Uh, unfortunately, it's just something I would hope that they would work on. It's, it's not just my opinion. Speak to anyone. It is yeah. unfortunately the reputation that the airline has, has overcome. And so now when uh, I encounter an Iberia crew who are not rude, it's the exception and I really notice it and I write into the airline to try to show them, look, it was great for a reason. And my last Iberia flight was on an A350, also from Madrid to London. And uh, the crew were, you know, I mean, don't disturb us, don't look us in the eye, nothing. We're not even going to, you know, I can't tell you how fast they have to stand at the at the front of the aisle uh, for the safety demo, but only until a certain point, only until the point in which they have to highlight where the nearest exits are, because it's obviously, it's a video that's playing. And I cannot tell you how fast they run back into that galley and close the curtain. I'm thinking, why are you closing the curtain? You have to open it in a minute. We're literally taxiing, but anyway. Yeah, they just want to go gossip or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next question I have is from David. He says, hi, Alex, I love the podcast and I'm yet to miss an episode. Thank you very much. It's what we love to hear. That's why we keep doing it. We love it. He says, here's a question. Do you ever use the socks provided in amenity kits? I have, I never have, and I've yet to see anyone using them. Keep up the fabulous work. I'll let you go first. I do. I, it, okay, it depends. Not every flight, but sometimes if, for <laughs> example, I want to go to the toilet and there's no slippers, I might just put those on over my other socks to go to the toilet. Uh, I know maybe you're horrified by this, but then I'll put those on know, and then take them off back in my seat. You know, that residue on the toilet floor seeps through those flight socks. <laughs> <laughs> Only if they're good socks, mm. I will wear them. Okay. I I um, I laughed at this question because I do not often use the socks provided in, in amenity kits, but I do depending on what I am wearing. I'll give you an example. When I just flew back from Airbus, I was full day at Airbus and then the flight was in the afternoon. So I went from headquarters to airport to plane. So I boarded, I was still wearing my suit and I was in 
you know, smart shoes, meaning I'm wearing the black socks. They are not so comfortable then for seven hours. So then I, I, I made it more comfortable by padding out with the amenity kit socks. So, so I did then. However, if I'm in my usual travel clothes, athleisure, whatever, then there would be no need because I make sure the socks are already comfortable. I did yeah. not think we'll be discussing socks on, on air when we started the podcast, but here we are. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so Nisa has a great question. She says, hi, Dan and Alex. Love the podcast. I have a question about Turkish Airlines. I've been wondering for a long time now why Turkish Airlines does not have 747s or A380s in their fleet. From what I know, their biggest airplane is the 777, but for such a big global airline, they must uh, at least have one of those airplane models Um Okay, as a lot of passengers fly with Turkish, why do you think this is? That's an interesting question. I fly Turkish quite a lot. Um, Turkish Airlines has had a lot of... Now we think of them as a great airline, huge airline, with one of the biggest hubs in the world. But it hasn't always been that way. They have had a rocky history, although they're a very old airline. During the 80s, 90s, when airlines might have been ordering the 747s, mostly... They were not really in a place to do that. They were at a very slot-constricted airport before moving to Atatürk. Wait, no, they were at Atatürk. Then they moved to the new one. So back then, it might have made more sense, but I think the size of the aircraft would have been a constraint then. I'm thinking off the top of my head, so I'm not 100% sure about this. But of course, all this time, they knew that the new airport was going to open. And even until the 2010s, Turkish Airlines didn't have a huge wide-body fleet. They have, you know, 737s, A320 family. But this idea of them having hundreds of wide-body aircraft, as they now have on order, is a thing that's come about in the last decade, decade and a half. So this is a new approach. And at this point, of course, airlines aren't ordering A380s. They aren't ordering the 747, even the 747-8. So then they're left with ordering, like they have now, the A350-1000 and the like. I want to do a quick shout out to Fahad from Saudi Arabia. I met him on the Lusail Boulevard a couple of weeks ago. He's DM saying he's a huge fan of the podcast and he also Dan says that he really hopes to be able to see you at some point and he wants you to let him know anytime you're in Saudi Arabia. It was good to meet you Fahad. Thank you as well for being a loyal listener. Awesome. It was great to meet a member of the public and they're passionate about our podcast which we just kind of sit and chat and share with you so yeah. that's always nice well guys thank you for sending in your questions we still have a few more but we're going to hand them over into next week's episode and do feel free to get in touch if you haven't already with anything that you want to query us about because it's probably the segment of the podcast i enjoy the most we enjoy everything and by the way today i just have to say because i feel like i've been a bit more of a diva than normal and alex has tried to paint me as more of a diva than normal so dan i just need to acknowledge no. that i realized that today no. there have been a lot of first world problems he realizes that come on it's the fun of the podcast he and also he knows that toulouse is in the south of france he doesn't mean any harm to <laughs> it's the just an insider joke bless him i don't even think he's been to Cannes. have you Okay. Uh, oh, God. Okay, we better wrap up the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's fine. We're well, both look. excited to see you next week. And uh, we can't wait to talk to you then on air. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>